your sovereignty that moves time onward. Lord, it's your spirit that's helped. It's your church that builds. But it is you, Lord, and your power that is romantically calling to each one of us like a bride and a groom. Lord, that today, maybe we've done this a thousand times, today can be another wedding day where we can renew ourselves in you we can fall in love with you, a king of all kings, over and over and over again. So Lord, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for the prayer time before. We thank you for first service and as crazy as it was. But Lord, we're asking for a whole new thing today. Lord, bring a fresh wind. Start it all over again. And so, Lord, we don't want something that's used, some system or religious pattern. We want you and you alone. And we pour out ourselves to you. We say our bones and our follicles and our hair and our, and our, and our voice and our heart and everything that's in us calls out to you. Lord, we thank you that that's even possible. Lord, we thank you for all of these things and specifically for your son found himself so graciously suspended between heaven and earth on the cross. Propitiation for our sin, Lord. We thank you for this truth and how it cries out from generation to generation. Salvation is ours by faith. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you guys so much. The worship team is just awesome. Look, they have like a rotation. They just said, okay, today let's do two pianos. And they still blow it up. I thought somebody had messed up. Like they communicated wrong. Oh, no, we already, have, we already have one. I'm sorry. So we just thank you guys so much. Oh, they left. <laughs> They're also magicians. <laughs> that was crazy. Uh, I want to uh, thank you guys for coming here this morning. My name is Beck, and I'm the teacher here at ESIS. Um, first service, we had a, a real move of the Spirit. God is, um, he's, he's richer in the morning. I just want you to know that. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but we're praying not for the same thing. We're praying for a new thing. And so I, I pray that you guys would help me out as well. We've had every technical difficulty this morning that you could possibly think of. So if this doesn't work and this doesn't work, we don't care. The Lord needs a word and a receiving heart. And we can change the world. I also said this morning, I want to I encourage you guys and thank you so much. You don't know what I'm about to thank you for, but you just need to know you're awesome. We survived the election. Yes. And uh, it's, still, it's still called the USA and everything. Isn't that, isn't that something? Some of you think, man, we won. Some of you think we lost. Um, the truth is that for generation after generation, kings have been uh, leaving and taking thrones. And God has been sovereign over the whole thing. One day we are going to realize that there is more power sitting in these pews than will ever be in the Oval Office. Twelve teenage knuckleheads believed that about themselves and the God they served, and we're talking about them still today. They changed the world. When we see this revelation happen in our own heart, we'll begin to change this country, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. 
from the brokenhearted to the widow to the orphan, we will start to see change happening in our families, in our own hearts, in our own communities, in our own school system, and it will become to look like a light on a hill. We will testify not to our glory, not to our power, not to our money or significance, but that we belong to a kingdom and that this kingdom is ever expanding. Okay? So just everybody take a deep breath. That was the non-Christian. That's the Beck way of saying it. Okay, relax. God is still in control and and we're all going to be okay. And uh, thank God that it's over. Today we're in the book of Nehemiah. We're closing it out. I I said to my wife earlier, I said, I think we've been studying it for three years. Does anybody know how long we've been doing this? Decade, I don't know. I was 11 when we started. No, I'm kidding. We're finally in the last passage here in the book of Nehemiah. Alex communicated to you last week that we'll be starting the book of Revelation here in the near... Sorry. We're studying the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights. I've been teaching that also for a decade. But it does start with an R. Romans is the book that we're starting next year. Uh, My wife goes, I can hear her even when she doesn't say anything. Thank you for that, dear. (laughs) Um, And so we hope that you guys are encouraged and excited for that. Today's message is called Honey and Cliffs, the Stickiness of Sin and God's Cure. I want to start off today by talking about sandwiches. I consider myself a sandwich aficionado. Uh, I've been experimenting with sandwich mixtures for many years. In fact, I invite Alex over often to say, man, you got to try this out. I put French toast in it this time. (laughs) (laughs) This is a burrito sandwich. This is a quadruple decker sandwich. Uh, Some of them are miserable failures, but some of them are awesome. Now, there is one sandwich that started it all, one particular basic and also awesome sandwich um, that was sort of the birth of my sandwich-loving days, and that is the peanut butter and honey sandwich. For generations, the peanut butter and honey sandwich has been in the Easton history books, and it's been uh, eaten by kids and who have missed breakfast or told mom that they didn't eat before their sports events or late nights studying. It's nutritious and tasty, but it's also a problem. Because no matter what you do, honey gets everywhere. And it is sticky. You have a peanut butter and honey sandwich, you just have to conclude that you're going to have sticky fingers. And then you're going to have a sticky steering wheel. And then you're going to have a sticky shoe and a sticky tax return and a sticky firstborn child. It just gets everywhere. I'm telling you this ridiculous and stupid story because we're going to use honey as our illustration for sin. We can make changes in our life that get rid of the most of sin. We can wipe ourselves down or clean ourselves up. But there's always this remaining remnant, this residue of sin. We can never make ourselves totally clean. And that residue gets sticky And I'm here to tell you this morning, it may be an original message, it may be not, that the stickiness of sin doesn't only affect you, but future generations. So we're going to talk about the stickiness of sin in the book of Nehemiah. Let's catch you guys up since we're in the final chapter. It's been like that for for such a long time. Uh, uh, Let's see here if this is even going to work. Oh, I know why. Technical. 
Romans 3.23 says this before we get into the book of Nehemiah. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Some of us in here are black. Some of us in here are white. Some of us are rich or poor. Some of us voted for one and some of us voted for the other. But sin is the great equalizer. There is not a person in here who is free from sin. And you might think, well, Beck, I've been improving. I've been on a plan. I saw a sermon and I watched a TED talk and I'm getting, I'm getting better. There is no man throughout all of history that has ever encountered the stickiness of sin and got rid of it on his own. We all have it. The book of Nehemiah is no different at all. Nehemiah is a Jew and he's a cupbearer to a Persian king. He hears about his homeland and all kind of falls apart down home. His heart is broken for a city not only with a disobedient people, but a dilapidated wall. So he goes to Jerusalem by edict of the king and he rebuilds the wall and he takes a disobedient nation and turns them into the nation of God all over again. This has been happening throughout history. Nehemiah then leaves and comes back about 12 years later. They had this incredible moment where the, the nation in unity kind of turns back to the Lord and they say to God, um, back in the temple, the priests are in the right place and the, 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 those who aren't Jews are outside of the city walls and the wall is established. They say to one another, we, God, are going to connect ourselves back with your law. They say kind of in one voice, what you say that we should do is now more important than what we say we should do. And so they say they're going to honor God, not only with the law, but specifically highlighting three areas. The first is the tithe. They're going to honor the tithe. They're going to give to the church. The second is the Sabbath. And finally, they're going to honor the holiness of marriage by not marrying outside of the nation of Jerusalem to keep the bloodline holy. Nehemiah loves it. He goes away for 12 years. And when he returns, what do you think he finds? They've foregone the tithe. They've forgotten the Sabbath. And they've shacked up with the enemy. And he goes ballistic. <laughs> Alex has been preaching the last few weeks about tithes and the Sabbath. And now today in this last portion, we're closing out the book of Nehemiah talking about marriages. It's kind of poetic, really. The book of Nehemiah is the last chronological book in the Bible. Did you know that? 400 years from this date in the book of Nehemiah enters Jesus. And the book of Nehemiah closes talking about the sanctity and importance of marriage. And Jesus comes to prepare his bride. See, there's something special about this idea of marriage. But marriage is not anything outside of holiness. It's just another relationship. And God is saying, there is no such thing as holiness without me. Did you know that no marriage will work no matter the books you read? That's kind of a, like a daunting thought. No marriage will work no matter the amount of counseling they go to. No marriage will work with the amount of money that you could possibly dream up. No marriage will work with skill. No marriage will work with the right kids. Marriage only works with Christ. Period. Those other things can help. But Christ alone is the way something can be holy. And Nehemiah makes this point here in chapter 13. We will start in uh, chapter 13, verse 23. This is Nehemiah speaking. In those days, I would read your Bible if you can, because I don't trust this for a second. But if you want to look up at the screen because you didn't bring your Bible, shame on you, but you continue. In those days, I saw that the Jews had... Uh, <laughs> 
lucky one person left. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for the children, half spoke the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them and cursed them and uh, struck some of them and pulled out their hair. <laughs> And made them answer, and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Verse 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him. And he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all the great all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Jediah, the son of Eliashib, the, son, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove them away from me. Verse 29. Remember them. Oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood at the appointed times for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. What I want to do is jump back up into the top of Scripture and see what the Lord wants to highlight uh, for us this morning in each verse. One of the common mistakes in the Old Testament is to think that it, the, the word only has to do with what it meant historically. The book of Nehemiah is a history lesson and it's important to know where we came from, but we really can't draw from that personally today. See, that's a lie. Every scripture in the Bible, prophetically or otherwise, points to Christ. We're going to talk about some of those things today. But because it points to Christ, and the Bible says that if you believe in Him, He is in you, it points to you. We can learn about ourselves by learning about the nation of Israel. Let me prove it to you here. Let's start in verse 23. It says here, I'll read it again just real quick. In those days, I also saw the Jews had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. What's wrong with these women? I mean, God can't really deny who we love. That's messed up. We love who we love. Isn't he a gracious and giving God? It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. It's not a man marrying, and this may seem coarse, but it's not a man marrying a beast or a man marrying another man. This is another woman. What's wrong with this? In order to understand why this bothered the Lord, and thus me and Nehemiah, we can't go forward until we go back. We have to go back all the way to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 is the story of Abram, who will soon to be called Abraham, and the Lord. The Lord loves Abram, and, and Abram loves the Lord. And he calls down to him, and he says, I'm going to make you a promise. See, the nation of Israel in Nehemiah, before it was a nation, it was a people. And before it was a people, it was a son. And before it was a son, it was a seed. And before it was a seed, it was a promise by God. Did you know that God cannot lie? People say, God can do all things. He cannot lie. He puts a law over himself that forbids him from going back on his own word. And then he asks us to lean on, that's the picture for faith, to have faith in his word because it is more true than anything we could uh, erect or draw up. We lean on something we make and it falls short. We lean on something he makes and it's firm, the word of God. 
God makes a promise to Abraham. And you'll see this in chapter 12, starting in verse... Uh, we'll start in verse 2. This is the Lord speaking. And I will make a, you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall also be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. Watch this. And the one who curses you, I will curse. Later on in Deuteronomy 23, when Moses is giving the law, it says that the, their, Moses declares to the nation of Israel that nobody from the nation of uh, Moab or the nation of the Amorites is allowed to be wed with the nation of Israel, even to the 10th generation. He does this not because he doesn't like those stinky Moabites. He does this because when the nation of Israel was leaving in captivity, um, remember Moses, he takes them through the desert, there's a straight shot to the promised land. And people stop them in their way and say, no, you must go around. Forces the nation of Israel, this kind of band of misfits, three million people and all their goats and stuff, to not go through the straight path, which was much safer in the valley, but to go around, which was dangerous for God's people. Many people were killed at that moment in history. The nation that told the Israelites to stop was the nation of the Moabites and the Amorites. Later on, uh, King Balak hires Balaam, a prophet, to curse the nation of Israel. He's a Moabite. In 1 Samuel 6, chapter 12, King David has the ark, which is the presence of God, and the Ashdodites from Ashdod, okay, nation right next to Jerusalem, steal the ark. Now God messes with them. He brings rats, floods the camp, and then everybody gets boils. He did tell them that there was a return policy, though. They give it back. <laughs> Because they're like, okay, I don't want to mess with these warts anymore. But what had been done was a curse had to be put upon the Ashdodites, the Moabites, and the Amorites because of their offense they had cursed the nation of Israel. Now why does God seem so cruel here? God is trying to make a distinct difference, and so is Nehemiah in this time, that the nation of Israel must look different than the rest of the world. Everybody in the world's got the sticky honey all over them. How are we going to be able to tell the difference between an Israelite and a Moabite if everybody's sticky? You see, your sin may just be a decision. It may just be a romantic relationship. It may just be a friendship. It may just be a, a coarse word or a quick moment in anger. But did you know that that sticky sin doesn't only get on you? It gets on your kids or your kids' kids. I come from a family who has six consecutive generations of divorce on both sides. Divorce is more common than Christmas in my family. Now, I'm a married man who is petrified that what my parents have done, I'm not going to be able to get away from. Because their sticky is getting on me. And I've said a thousand times that I'm not going to do that. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm making a promise right now. I'm putting my foot in the ground that says that I will not ever get a divorce. And I told my parents that. And they said to me, yeah, man, I said the same thing. Oh, what? <laughs> See, the stickiness that you may be pursuing now, it may not seem like a big deal. But if you let it continue to go on, we will, one day will forget who we are altogether. We won't be able to tell each other apart. See, it says that in verse 25 that these children couldn't speak the nation or the language of Jerusalem, the language of their fathers. They had inbreded with this nation of Moabites and the Amorites so much so that they stopped speaking the language of God. 
Did you know that the Lord tells us in His Word that we are to associate with the world? It's called in, not of. We are to. But we are not to assemble with the world. We, in the same way, are to be like a light in the darkness. We're to be different than the world. But we're not going to be different from the world because we try hard and we wear different clothes and we smell different and we, we do different things like the nation of Israel. We are going to be different from the world by, by what's in us now. Amen. A purity that, that comes out of us by Christ being with us. Does that make sense? And if we continue to try and be relevant to try and associate with the world and speak their language and do what they do because we just want to have grace. Not only now, but a hundred years from now, if the Lord hasn't returned yet, what does the church look like? If we continue to become relevant, eventually we'll stop speaking His language. Now I've told some stories today, but I hope that you know that the Word of God is the only reason to sit in these chairs. Because it's the only thing that purifies. It's the only thing that makes you aware of the stickiness of your sin. You continue to not read the Word. You go a few months along, you'll start to say this to yourself. I'm doing pretty good. I'm feeling pretty good. I've got some skills. I know the Lord. But I tell you what, the more you read the Bible, the more you start to become aware. There's a part of me that isn't of you, God. There's a part of me that's sticky that I need to get rid of. I don't recommend Christianity for any person who's just looking for comfort. <laughs> because if you read the Word, you'll be comforted. But you're going to get uncomfortable in the process. Does that make sense? Chapter 25 talks about in, not of. I want to read one scripture for you here. Matthew 13 says this. This is a parable from Jesus. It's called tares and wheat. Tares is, is weeds, if you will. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while the men were sleeping, this enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore a, bore a grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves and the landover came together and said to him, Sir, do you not sow, did you not sow good seed in your field? How does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in that time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares, bind them in bundles, and burn them up. But gather the wheat and put it in my barn. The Word makes us aware of the tares in our own life. Because when the Lord comes the second time, He is not going to be bringing any sort of uh, opportunity to reverse from a tear to a piece of grain. He's going to be burning the chaff and keeping the rest. I told you that every scripture in the Old Testament points to Jesus. And the book of Nehemiah is no different. Notice this. The first time Nehemiah comes, he comes in secret and he comes bringing a message of reconciliation. Do you see that? He wants to rebuild broken people. Nehemiah leaves for 12 years, which symbolically and in theology is kind of the number for perfection times perfection. 12 is a very symbolic number in the scripture. Complete. When the time is completed, Nehemiah returns, but he's not bringing a message of reconciliation, and he's not coming in secret. He's coming to pull out hair. 
He's coming to exact judgment on his people. And he will come at a time that is unknown. There's another parable in the scripture that says that a man uh, had given seed to many sowers. And some of the sowers said, well, my master's not coming back for a long time so I can get drunk and be with the drunkards. But what he does not know is that the master will come by surprise. And when he sees that the drunkards, um, or that this man had not sown, instead had been drunk, he will chop him up and he will burn him in fire. See, the point is not that God is just a mean judge. It's that he will have his perfect bride. And in order for the bride to be perfect, she must not look like the world. This is also important for your leaders. If you've ever attended a church that is not feeding you the word, beware. Because the Lord is going to come when nobody knows. He's going to crack open the sky and he's going to exact judgment. And he's going to be looking for leaders who are feeding his sheep ones who are feasting on the word. And so quickly we can get caught up into great slideshows and stories and presentations and, and, and illustrations that we lose the word all together. And all of a sudden, we don't know if we're a Moabite, an Ashdodite, or an Israelite. Does that make sense? Okay. So he's pulling out hair. He's not killing anybody, but he is exacting the idea that this should be painful because you are hurting the Lord and his plan. He also says that one of the women was given to um, the Sambalot, the Horonite. He was the enemy in the first three chapters. You remember the guys that were after the wall, teasing them that a fox could jump on it and tear the wall down? That was Sambalot. Talk about sleeping with the enemy. It's also, Nehemiah sees this as the beginning of the end. Because the Israelites needed to be pure, but the Levi or the Levites, Levites inside of the nation of Israel was the tribe that took care of the temple. They needed to be particularly clean and holy because they were the ones that went into the Holy of Holies. These were the priests. A priest was marrying a person outside, a foreigner, to the nation of Israel. Now this is important because the Jews are very uh, particular about their bloodline. And they've kept records for thousands of years on who was a Levite. Well, after Jesus dies on the cross and raises from the dead, that temple is destroyed and burned up and all of the records are with it. And they're saying to each other, how are we going to perform the priestly duties now? How are we going to provide sacrifice in the temple? And the Lord says, through me, the old way isn't needed any longer. Now that story cannot be completed if these Levites are not purified by Nehemiah. Do we see that? But in the end, it's about being in and not of. We can be in the world but we cannot be of the world. There is a difference. Okay. I call this next one, Honey, Life Hack, and Lies. It's in verse 26 and 27. Let's read it real quickly. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was, like, there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, uh, the foreign women caused him to sin. What he's saying is this. Solomon had the best life hack ever given to man. He prays, and the Lord gives him wisdom without measure. That, that no man in history had ever seen this wisdom before, with the exception of Christ. And then he just kind of throws the cherry on top. I, Lord, if you're listening, man, I, I could try it. You can give me a swing at the old money dig game. Gives him more riches than any man has seen throughout history. He has built himself in every way to be holy. He has no excuse whatsoever. And a pretty girl walks by, and even he fails. 
Even with all his, his security systems and all of his wisdom around him and all of his kingdom working on his behalf and him being a great king couldn't stand up to the stickiness of sin. And so Nehemiah is saying to them, you love this guy Solomon. You've read about him in your history books. Are you greater than him? Do you have infinite levels of money and infinite levels of wisdom so that you can withstand the temptation of the enemy? No. Do you think you can do it another way outside of the Lord? He's making a point to them. And the problem is, we have this same problem today. We believe we listen to a TED Talk or we make a vow or a New Year's resolution and we, we put ourselves on a calendar and it's in Quicken on a spreadsheet and we've got it all figured out. But how many times has that worked? How many times have you found yourself before the Lord in the morning saying, okay, today is Monday. It's the beginning of the week. It's a fresh start. I'm going to commit myself back to you again. I'm going to have this quiet time. Next Monday rolls around. Okay, it's the beginning of the month and it's Monday. So this time I'm doing it. I'm going to get rid of all this sin. No matter how hard we try, no matter what system we put in place, we cannot purify ourselves. It's impossible to do so. He finally says this, Remember me, O my God. This is in verse 29 and 31. For good. He's making this claim. He's saying, I know, Lord, your plan. I know what you want to do with this nation, but I don't know when you're going to enact judgment on me. Nehemiah is operating quickly. He has some earnestness to his language and to his talk, not because he's mad at the nation of Israel, but because he knows he's the leader of these people and God can come at any moment. See, one of the things we make a mistake of is that we have a lot of time. Tomorrow I can take care of it. Tomorrow I'll get to it. It's not that much sin. It's just a little sticky. We'll take care of it another day. The Bible says that we need to fear God, not in the sense like He's going to come and, 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 and scare us, or that He's so powerful and awesome and He's mad at us, but that we need to revere Him. See, I do, my thing, I do things when the, my wife asks me because I love her, because I fear her, because I honor her, and because I want what, what she requests, I want to do for her. See, it's out of a loving relationship with the Lord that Nehemiah says, Remember me, O God, for this moment, because I don't want you to ever say that I wasn't trying to enact your word. Do we see the Lord as that important in our life? Or does our calendar take precedent? Or our diet take precedent? Or our making sure that we're doing religious actions like coming to church? Does that take precedent over a relationship with the Lord that says, God, I'm going to step into this. I'm going to pray for this person. I'm going to change this life. But remember me in this time. Particularly for you leaders, for you mothers, for you fathers. To have an urgency when it comes to your relationship with the Lord is a healthy thing. You can be in His rest and be urgent to serve at the same time. It's a possibility. Okay. He says, remember me, O oh my God, for good. This brings us to the resolution. Well, how are we going to get rid of this sticky sin situation? When I was in college... I uh, was on a football team, and a bunch of us went down to Pueblo, Colorado, that's where I'm from, to go cliff diving in the Pueblo Reservoir. We're all big, strapping, invincible men, and we go to the edge of this cliff, and we look down, it's 83 feet to the bottom. That is a fall. 
all these guys jump off. I'm on the last one to go. I'm from Pueblo. This is my home turf. I should be able to just kind of do a backflip or something. And I get to the edge and I'm like, man, I don't know if I can do this. I'm having one of those grown-up temper tantrums. Have you ever had that? Why is this happening? Often those happen in the car. You bang the steering wheel. That's why they make them so hard. I'm sure of it. Because people are going to beat on them. So I'm, I'm at this point where I'm like mad at God because I'm a Christian at this moment. And I'm thinking, I can't do this. You're going to embarrass me. There's all these men down there. They don't, they're going to think I'm a man. What's wrong with you? Just help me. Then, then you start to do it yourself, right? You start to lie. Well, what if I told him that a sheriff came and told me I couldn't jump? I gotta, like, is there a receipt somewhere? Could I pretend it's a ticket? Can I hike back down the long way? And I'm, so I'm all by myself and I'm having this temper tantrum and everybody's like, come on, down at the bottom of the cliff. It's not that bad. What's wrong with you? So I get to the edge and I wave myself back. You remember that one? Well, one time I get to the edge and my weight just kind of tipped myself over. So now I'm not even able to jump the way I want. You get directly over lake water, and you can see deep. At any angle, it just looks like kind of slush. I'm telling you, there was Mount Everest underneath the bottom of that lake. <laughs> I was so afraid in that moment. I remember it just like it was today. I'm not talking like, boo, ah, I'm scared. That like car accident. <laughs> afraid that takes your breath away fear so it's recorded I jump off and I get about three feet off the cliff and you're supposed to do this when you when you hit the water I get three feet off the ground I'm already like this like I'm ready to go <laughs> you start to lean to the side I have to wave myself back in and I hit the water that was the scariest moment of my life because I thought I was gonna die and I'll tell you what I went from as scared as I've ever been in my life to a boy in summer you get under the water and it's quiet. Sun, the rays are kind of going through the water. Bubbles are up. We go to the Lord and we say, we have this sticky sin problem. How do we get rid of the residue of our sin? And he says, if you'll jump off the cliff. We say, well, no, Lord, can't you just wipe me down or clean me up? He says, no, I have a different plan altogether. I want to take your flesh and I want to throw it in the trash with the rest of them. Well, Lord, that's terrifying. What if I'll be embarrassed? I'll be a new person and my family won't recognize me and they'll say that I'm, I'm a cheater now and I, I can't change and that's not who I really am. All these lies start to come up. And he's saying, if you will die to yourself, what will remain in you is me. And we get to this moment where we're on the cliff of our life. We're at the edge of ourself. And when we jump, we think it's all over for us. I can't take this anymore. The Bible says in Luke 9.23 that unless you deny yourself and take up your cross, you cannot be His disciple. In order to follow Him requires a death of self. There is no system. There is no church service. There is no sermon. There is no judge that can change the stickiness of your sin. We have to get rid of it altogether. C.S. Lewis says it best. And he says it like this. Can we get the worship team up and the uh, offering ready to go? This is a great Christian author that I, I greatly appreciate and admire. He says, give up yourself and you'll find your real self. He says, lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death of your own ambitions and favorite wishes and every day, uh, wishes every day and death of your whole body. In the end, submit with every fiber of your being. And you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. 
Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. That's good. Nothing that you have... Uh, that you have that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find that in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find Him and with Him everything else thrown in. See, we have to, this may be an unoriginal message and I'm okay with that. When we make a decision to jump off a cliff, we're also saying to the Lord that we trust that you live in us. You have to know that. That no matter what's been thrown at you, no matter what your past says, no matter what you believe about yourself, the very power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in your mortal body. And he sanctified us on the cross. He does. He, it was a justification for our sins. But now he's saying, will you do the same thing I did every day? Will you do it continually? Paul says, Paul says die continually. He says, die daily to yourself. I, I use that as like, I need to die all the time. Because I'll get outside and start looking at the NFL app, and then I need to die all over again. And we think, Lord, we're losing ourselves. We're losing our personality. I'm losing my uniqueness. Reminder, he made you. He knows just how unique you are. And he's not going to mess up his own creation. What he's going to do is make you who you've been all along. Now, listen to this. You may have heard this message a thousand times. And you may be saying, okay, yeah, I get it. I understand. Let me ask you something. How's it going doing it your way? How's that treating you? See, we think that it's the enemy. We think that it's our past. We think that it's our finances. We think that it's the government. We think that it's all these other things that are hemming us in from being, or to being the sticky, sinful people that we are. But the truth is, your own worst enemy is yourself. Because your toes are off the edge of greatness in Christ. And all we have to do is jump. Let's bring up the offering. just so cute. Alright, you want to pray with me? Lord, we just thank you for the offering. God, we ask that those who are here would give freely um, from their heart, that they would give because they're free, and Lord, that they would give for freedom for others. Thank you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand to our feet? We're going to spend some time in the worship of the Lord, and then we'll bring the benediction in just a second.